Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode, I'm going to be taking a break from the solo series that I've been developing to do an interview episode, and I have a really terrific guest for y'all that many of the listeners have requested, Professor Jonathan Wolfe. And what we're going to be discussing in this episode is what is the role of political philosophy or ethical philosophy in informing practical applied decision making in public policy. And as you'll hear, Professor Wolf has a really deep and probably quite unique experience in being a political philosopher who's served on many government committees analysing if the law in particular areas should be changed or reformed in some way. And so we talk both about that in theory, as well as some of the applied cases, particularly um, the regulations that are imposed on the gambling industry, we go into in a little bit of depth. So Professor Wolf is at Oxford University and is the Alfred Langendecker Professor of Values and Public Policy and Governing Body Fellow at Wolfston College. He was formerly Blavatnik Chair in Public Policy at the school, and before that, Professor of Philosophy and Dean of Arts and Humanities at UCL. He's currently developing a new research programme on revitalising democracy and civil society in accordance with the aims of his professorship. His other current work largely concerns equality, disadvantage, social justice and poverty, as well as applied topics such as public safety, disability, gambling, which we discuss in this episode, and the regulation of recreational drugs, which he's discussed in his books Ethics and Public Policy, A Philosophical Inquiry, which we touch on quite a lot here, and The Human Right to Health. His most recent book is An Introduction to Moral Philosophy. His earlier works include Disadvantage, An Introduction to Political Philosophy, Why Read Marx Today, and Robert Nozak. So, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's certainly something that people on social media were excited for when I announced that it was coming up. And just before we get started, as always, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do share it on social media, recommend to friends, and if you are able to support it in a more monetary way, all of the costs of this podcast are covered by listeners. So I don't do any advertisements, I don't have any sponsors, um, all of the costs associated with this um, are just people chipping in whatever seems right to them on Patreon. So I've been suggesting $2 an episode as a sort of uh, voluntary contribution to the show. So if this episode seems like it's worth a couple of bucks to you, I'd, uh, I'd love to have them. You can uh, sign up to sponsors on patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And for all of the links to subscribe, download episodes, follow on social media, whatever, that's just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. And as always, everyone who does support the show by sharing or by sponsoring, I'm genuinely incredibly grateful, 
and you're allowing me to continue doing this and to continue putting out great conversations like this um, to anybody who wants to listen to them for free. So thank you so much for everyone who does those things. And if you do enjoy the show, um, you know, consider supporting it either by chipping in or hitting that share button. Okay, with that said, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you all Professor Jonathan Wolfe. I'm joined by Professor Jonathan Wolf. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so how do you self-describe your sort of academic profile? How do you, What do you like to read and think and write and talk about? And I guess as we're going to be discussing, um, what are some of the applications of that? Right. Well, it all depends who I'm talking to. If people uh, just ask me, my area, uh, I'll say I'm a political philosopher. Um, if they want a bit more detail, I'll say that I work primarily in areas where uh, political philosophy meets public policy. So I teach now in a public policy school, and I'm teaching public policy students, which is very different to teaching students who are studying philosophy on a single honours degree or on a master's, for example. Okay, and we're going to do, following on from that, ethics and public policy. You start that with a story about how you got involved in that, because this isn't probably the number one thing political philosophers do, right? So how did, mm-hmm. how did, how did that happen? How did it all begin? Yeah, um, so it began in the pre-email days. Uh, I was just a standard contemporary political philosopher, I was working on topics like political obligation, um, maybe democracy then. And I got a message in my pigeonhole, as we had at work, um, asking me to call the Home Office. And it was the Department of Gaming, Liquor and Data Protection. Hmm. And so I imagined that I had done something to breach the data protection law and I was phoning to get to told off about something. So I was a bit apprehensive. Um, But no, um, it turned out they wanted me to speak to the gaming department. And what had happened was that the government had decided to have a review of gambling law. And the process they followed, they normally follow, is to set up a committee. And they've had a couple of committees in the past. Um, The most recent one before Mine um, involved Bernard Williams, um, the Agony Aunts, Marjorie Proops, the sports commentator David Coleman, and the civil servant who was set up, who was given the task of setting up the new committee, I think decided to go through the same type of specialisms. And he'd been a Cambridge undergraduate, and he'd been taught by the philosopher Malcolm Budd, who was then my head of department. So he'd phoned up Malcolm to ask Malcolm if he wanted to be on the committee. And Malcolm, well, it would be the last thing that Malcolm would have wanted to do. He was a scholar who would just sit and work on his own. 
but Malcolm recommended me and I was completely unknown at that time. But um, the student civil servant went with Malcolm's recommendation and asked me if I'd be interested in joining the committee. And so you know, as soon as he said, would I like to be involved in a review of gambling law? I thought to myself, well, of course I do. But I pretended to be thinking about it. So, um, so I asked him, well, I don't know what would it involve. And he said, well, we've got a professional secretariat that will write the report. So you, you'll just have to come to meetings. But you will also have to visit gambling establishments. So there'll be about 12 visits to different gambling establishments. So I thought this sounded you know, really fun and important and worthwhile. And maybe we'll get on to this. I didn't think it was going to be very hard either. And, and so I agreed straight away. And then um, when I went to the first meeting, it was true that we were going to go to 12, roughly speaking, gambling establishments. So I went to a British casino for the first time, a high-end casino. I went to the dog track. I went to a spread betting office. Uh, what else? A horse races a couple of times. Um, I went up to Blackpool to watch kids play on the arcades and uh, a number of other things. But it was actually very hard work because we'd asked for submissions and the gambling industry really took this very seriously. We asked about 12 questions and we gave them two or three months to write in their submissions. And when I looked at the submissions that came in, you know, the pile was about up to my waist. And you know, all the big gambling companies had got consultants to write basically lobbying essays of two or 300 pages. So we had thousands and thousands and thousands of pages to wade through, which we did. At the end, one of the very last submissions I read was from an academic, uh, one of the very few academics working in the, this area. And he said, I don't know why you bothered to call for evidence, because all the gambling companies would will say um, they ought to be allowed to do a bit more, but no one else should be allowed into the industry. And the uh, religious people, anti-gambling people will write in and say uh, gambling should be banned. And academics will write in. And I thought he would say academics will write in and give you an objective view. But what he said was academics will write in and they'll say we don't know enough in this area and we need more money for research. And so that really was quite an important moment in my life to read that and to think, actually, you know, as academics, we have our own vested interests as well, even though we don't always realize it. So anyway, that's how I got started. And that actually sets up the next bit quite nicely, is I think there's an impulse to try and locate objectivity somewhere, right? And that, that buck often gets put on academics, that obviously the gambling industry has their vested interests, particular religious or whatever groups have their point of view. But the idea there's got to be some sort of impartial arbiter out there somewhere, right? Um, but you you want to sort of not have that placed on the heads of academics, if I read you right. Well, it's a nice idea that we can come to an objective, independent view that's not tainted by any interests. I think to some degree we can, but it's really a question of how we go about doing that. So as I was listening to uh, the chap who phoned me speak about the need for a review of gambling law, 
I thought to myself, well, this sounds fun. And as I said before, um, I don't think it sounds very hard. Why not? Well, by that time, I'd been teaching John Stuart Mill on liberty for more than a decade. And you know, we all know the harm principle, which says that you know, the only legitimate reason for interfering with the liberty of any one person is to prevent harm to others. And that the person's own good is not a legitimate reason for interfering. So if you think, of, you know, that's the basis of public policy. We can only intervene when we're preventing one person harming or risking harm to another. Um, the regulation of gambling looks quite straightforward. Because typically, um, if anyone is harmed by gambling, it's the gambler rather than anyone else. Now, you might say that, well, you know, if they overspend, they can harm their family. But that's equally true of shopping, playing too much golf, going to watch your football team away in Europe or something. So um, that's an argument for limiting how much people can spend. But it's not necessarily a reason for limiting gambling. So I went in. So my first instinct was to think, well, OK, um, I know the answer to how we should regulate gambling. We should let adults make their own choices. But of course, as soon as I said that out loud, just to myself, I didn't say it out loud, really. I articulated it to myself. I thought, well, this is bizarre, because if you think about what we do in this country, um, we don't let adults gamble just as they want. We have these incredible restrictions. So, for example, at that time, um, if you wanted to play bingo, and I'm not defending this, I had a bingo hall next to where I was living. And before I uh, started the on the gambling review body, and we had some friends around one night, and we thought, wouldn't it be fun to go around the corner and play bingo? So we went round, and um, we said, we'd like to play. They said, fine, you have to be members. So we said, great, we'll be members. They said, and it takes 48 hours to process your membership. And we said, well, this is ridiculous. What a stupid business model to take 48 hours to process a membership. They said, oh, no, it's not our decision. That's the law, that if you wanted to play bingo, you couldn't just walk into a bingo hall. You had to be a member and you had to go home and think about it for 48 hours to think, do you, do I really want to do this sinful activity of playing bingo? Hmm. The same thing for casinos. I, I remember this well, because when I was an undergrad, there was um, what we now call the poker boom, where it started up on TV and whatever. And there was a big influx of new players into the game. Um, and I actually made quite a lot not a lot but some money playing poker and i approached it really seriously and i like learned all the stats and there's books you could read on this and just took it like a job in many ways to sort of work with the student loan and stuff um mm -hmm. and no the exact same procedure you have to be a member of a private club to do this and i would be walking around with like 12 different membership cards yeah. in my pocket yeah. that's an aside but please go on but but that's exactly right. So that's one of the laws we changed in the end that that um, we, we said you didn't have to be a member. Uh, the casinos can make their own rules. So if they wanted to have members only and the high end ones do, of course, because they don't want people just walking in off the street. Um, but yeah, at the time we were uh, doing this work, there were, I think, about 120 casinos in the UK. Hardly anyone could even tell you where they were because they weren't allowed to say casino outside. They weren't allowed to advertise. Um, they could advertise in magazines that were aimed only at foreign tourists. So tourists could come and play, 
or you know, very few people in any city would have a membership. And so they were set up to put people off. Um, I think to this day, you still are not allowed live music in a casino because um, you know, if you compare that with um, Las Vegas, where the live music is a big draw, the regulators were worried that you know, people might come in to see a boy band and then they'd stay and gamble. And that can't be right. So we put all these restrictions on people to stop them gambling. I, I know a lot of people think we haven't done enough. We need to do more. But this all of this violates Mill's harm principle because we're stopping people from doing things that only harm themselves. And in fact, John Stuart Mill, when he was a young man, before he formulated any of this, wrote a letter to the Lancet magazine, an anonymous letter to the Lancet magazine, um, complaining about how much gambling degrades the moral character. So even Mill didn't want to apply the liberty principle, the harm principle to gambling. Is there, though, a liberty principle defence of that? Sorry, this is just occurring to me now, but I believe in... Chapter 4 of On Liberty? I might be getting this wrong, I'm doing it from memory. He makes a distinction between um, regulating the act of the customer and regulating the act of the business. And his logic is, you can't really regulate the customer, that's self-regarding, but trade is a social act, and if someone's in the business of you know, selling a product on a large scale. In principle, if not always in practice, that is regulatable. And so I forget if he uses gambling or prostitution as the example. I think it's prostitution, but you could map it over. And he says, you can't prevent people buying sex, but you can impose regulation on the brothel owner. So you could, some maybe not the 48-hour wait time, but stuff to do with membership, what casinos can and can't do. You could sort of imagine a lip... Li- I mean, I'm just doing the philosophical coherence thing that mm. you're going to argue against. But you, can, <laughs> you can imagine a liberty principle kosher sort of defence of that setup, I think. Well, you can try. I mean, so so uh, chapter four, that's a, a brilliant recall of what's in chapter four. I don't remember those details there. But what I do remember, the character of of chapter four is when Mill pretty much takes back everything he said before, because in, in the early chapters, we have this vigorous defense of liberty. Then it turns out you can't actually do very much according to his, his view. But I think what you put your finger on is something that um, some gambling theorists, philosophers of gambling have pointed out, is that there are actually there are three different questions we can ask about gambling. So, so one is, should gambling be legal? Another is, should it be legal to profit from gambling, and a third is should it be legal to promote gambling? And what the industry have done is deliberately confuse the three questions. So anyone who is opposed to anything the industry wants to do is painted as someone who's opposed to gambling. But you could be neutral on gambling, but think it's wrong for the government to uh, it's wrong for private companies to profit from it. Or you could think it's okay for companies to profit, but they shouldn't be able to advertise. Different countries have dealt with this in a different way. So in some countries, I think it's true of France and Sweden, they do have legalized gambling, but you can't operate as a gambler. Only the government can. So the, so the government is, a, is the bookie or owns a casino so individuals can't profit. That's so interesting. Um, 
I mean, I, I don't want to get digression on the liberty principle, although I do, I do like Mill quite a lot. I think the way I approach that is people start, I mean, understandably so, because this is what Mill claims it does, thinking this is a very clear principle that's going to very neatly delineate the world into two camps, you know, what we can mess with and what we can't. And then, of course, it's just like, well, what do you mean by harm? What do you mean by the rest of this stuff, right? And I've always sort of said, you actually don't want to take Mill at his word with the idea that it's a very clear principle, and he's basically going to tell you that later in the book. It's more like, say something like in a trial, what's admissible evidence or not. You've sort of got a vague framework for thinking about that, and you could have particular cases where lawyers would disagree, you know, well-informed people would go both ways, but there's still stuff that's clearly ruled out. You can't beat a confession out of someone. And I think the liberty principle's more like that. It's like, this is a way of thinking about it that will not answer every question, but it will rule some things clearly in and some things clearly yeah. out. That's yeah. sort of more how I think yeah. about that. So I, th- I think that's fair, but I, but I, I would, I suppose I'd say it's in a slightly different way, which is that um, you know, we start with these very strong intuitions about the liberty principle, the harm principle. Uh, you, we can't interfere with you unless you're threatening harm to others. British prime ministers say this. You know, we, you know, we agree with the harm principle. So it's, a, so it's a nice bit of rhetoric. But then it turns out when you think about public health campaigns where you are interfering with people's liberty for their own good, getting people to wear seatbelts, getting people to wear crash helmets, you're interfering with their liberty for the for their own good. So what you, can you do? Well, you can do, there are two things you can do. So one is to say, well, let's work, let's suppose, pretend that the liberty principle is the only principle and then do some convoluted reasoning to make it consistent with this other policy. So you have, you have a single principle and, but rather than thinking, well, what naturally follows from the, that principle, you believe some policies are correct. So you try to reconcile the two. That feels to me somewhat dishonest, because if you're thinking about why do you have those intuitions, it's probably because you think government does have a responsibility to protect people from themselves independently of their liberty. And so really what we're doing is saying we've got two principles. We've got liberty principle and we've got a type of paternalist principle and they conflict with each other and we have some hard choices to make. Um, If we try to pretend there's just one principle, then the reasoning gets very strained and contestable. But it's, it doesn't really explain why we have those intuitions in the first place. So my view is we, we should really start not with the principle, but with the problem. That's, what is the difficulty here? Why are we even talking about gambling? And the reason why we're talking about gambling is on the one hand, we think grown-ups ought to be able to do what they want with their own time and money. On the other hand, we know that if we let them do that, then some people are going to get into serious trouble um, to the point where, sadly, we hear people stealing money from work, going to prison, worst cases, even taking their own lives because of their gambling debts. So, yeah, I mean, I did just say I I played poker quasi-professionally for a while. I will say gambling long-term does strange things to people. I can say that firsthand. Um, And some professional gamblers, not all, I still have a couple of friends there, 
are the worst people in the world. Like, I was actually <laughs> talking to my wife about this last night, and I was like, pick the worst group of people you can, like the, the, the most hardcore Trump supporter or something, and then just pitch up 50% further down the road. That might sound mean, but there are some <laughs> weird people in that world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think there is a defense Mill could make there, but I'm not going to get sidetracked with that, right. because that yeah. does lead us on to sort of the main theme of this. So, um, in the introduction to this book, you write of ethics that you see it, quote, more like medicine than physics. Mm. Um, would that follow along from what you're saying about starting with the problem and looking at multiple frameworks for how you might solve it? I think that's right. I mean, so they, there is a way of doing ethics, and utilitarianism probably is the most obvious example of this, where you hope that you can come up with a very simple theory that explains everything. And, um, you know, Newton's principles of mechanics were very influential. Um, everyone wanted to be the Newton of the mind. Uh, so people with this ambition or, the, or earlier, they wanted to be Euclid and they wanted to proceed in the scientific view. So, so a lot of philosophers have looked to sciences as giving us a successful model of what a methodology is. And they've tried to do moral and political philosophy pretty much in the same way. And this means having um, a theory that is concise as you can make it, so the fewest number of variables and the fewest number of relations, and it has universal coverage. So, for example, the you know, theory of gravity, actually, I don't think I can state it, but I'm sure some people can. Oh, it's Christ, a very... you just triggered middle school memories. In me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think um, I could either. Uh, but, but someone can, I could look it up. Um, yeah. we could, and we could probably tweet it, and it covers everything in the world, uh, everything in the universe, roughly speaking. Right? And so I think that there's this ambition, I can completely understand it, that people want to be able to do the same thing for moral and political philosophy. Um, there's even an ambition among some philosophers of science, historically, I mean, not now so much, to think that you can somehow fit all the sciences together into one big science with one big formula, and one day we're going to explain, we're going to find the key that unlocks everything. Right. So scientists don't really believe that anymore. They don't seem to believe there's going to be simple unified theory where everything hangs together. Um, but some moral and political philosophers still do, and they think they can explain everything that needs to be explained or justify everything that needs to be explained in moral or political philosophy with a very simple theory. What I think is that's a very brave ambition, and I'm very glad people have it, and I'm very glad people do that work, because we learn a lot when people do it. But if you want to make a contribution to practical policy debates, you have to think a different way by starting with a problem rather than starting with your theory. And then think, you know, what are the values that are engaged here? Why are people interested in this topic? Why now? Um, you know, what are the dilemmas that people are worrying about, writing about in the newspapers? But so, I, I mean, I understand the, the argument against starting from pure theory and then just mapping out, if nothing else, it's a question of epistemology, like, do, do we really have reasons that are confident enough to say this is just it? Right. I guess my question there, though, is, are you purely working backwards from a specific problem? 
you know, like, say, gambling that we've been talking about, do you not go in with... I mean, I'm, I'm attributing the view to you, this might not be your view. Are you not going in with any priors as to, like, what degree of credence we might have in the liberty principle, or utilitarianism, or deontology, or what have you, as a sense of, like, if I'm in this space and someone makes an appeal to the liberty principle, even if I'm not going to say this is 100% true and universal, I'll, I'll give it this much weight, or I'll give utilitarian this much weight, or is it purely working backwards from a, a particular problem. Okay, so I wouldn't put it quite like that. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to pick either horns of your dilemma. I, I, I describe this slightly different way. I think you'll see how it connects. So um, stepping back a bit, it's very common for people to say we, you know, we all have different values or different people have different values. Um, I don't believe that. I think, roughly speaking, we all have the same values, roughly, the difficulty is that when they come into conflict, we decide to give them different weights. So I think everyone thinks liberty is important. Probably everyone thinks equality has some value. Most people think community has some value. Uh, but when there are dilemmas, we weight them in different ways. And I don't think there will ever be a theory, a well-justified theory, that tells us how to weight the different values against each other in some objective way. You know, we have choices to make. And very often, if you decide to uh, prioritize liberty, then you're going to allow quite a lot of harm, say, people harming themselves. If you want to stop people harming themselves, this is a debate we're in now with many areas. If you want to stop people harming themselves, you have to restrict their liberty. So they can't smoke in pubs anymore, for example. Or, um, and, and we're doing this to stop people harming themselves. There are also values of community that will come in, you know, what makes the community more cohesive. Sometimes values of tradition are important. So if you think about um, conservation rules on buildings, it's funny, we never really see it this way. But if, you, if you're living in a grade one listed house, that severely restricts your liberty. And what you can do, you can't knock it down, you can't make alterations to it. So, so in all of these areas, there are trade-offs between values. And so the real question in public policy is often, maybe not always, but often, when we have a conflict between values, how do we solve it? So which value do we give priority to? And um, something that often happens is you try to work out what types of compromises give people most of what they want, but get rid of the most dangerous forms of the activity. So, for example, it's a very boring example. We never talk about this in philosophy, but consider the example of driving. Now, um, in the UK, I think around about 2,500 people a year now die in car accidents. In the US, it's 10 times as many or more. So maybe 20 or 30,000 people a year are dying in car accidents in the US. Suppose we didn't have cars and someone said, I've got this brilliant invention. It's fantastic. It gets people around much faster. Unfortunately, 30,000 people a year are going to die if we bring it in. No. You'd have no chance of bringing in that new technology of so many. It would be outrageous to think of bringing in this new technology. Okay. So there's an argument that says we should ban cars because so many people are dying. But we're no one's ever going to win that argument now. The cars are so built into all of our ways of life. We don't know, we can't imagine what it would be like to live without cars at the moment. Maybe in 10, 20 years' time, 
you know, we'll have other technologies to replace them. But just at the moment, we, we couldn't. So what do we do? So what we do is say, okay, it's very important for people to drive, but it's not important that people can drive exactly how they want on every occasion. So we have speed limits, we have safety checks. So we try to take out the most dangerous forms so people who want to drive can get most, not everything, but most of what they want. And we try to make the environment as safe as we can. So I said this was very boring, and it is, but, but what we've done is to try to take away the most dangerous forms. And that's what we do in gambling as well, for example. So um, in the UK, in a casino, I think there's, I can't remember how many games you're allowed to play, but there's a limited number of authorized games. There are, in principle, dozens, probably hundreds of gambling games around the world, but you can only play maybe eight of them in the UK. And some of them may be thought to be too risky or too difficult for people to understand and so on. But yeah, anyone who wants to gamble in the UK, you can find ways to gamble. So if we change the opportunities, okay, it may make the environment a bit more boring or restrict your liberty a little bit. But if it makes it safer, safer, then maybe it's justified as long as you can do something similar. So this is not a very, doesn't seem a very philosophical way resolving the debate you know there's no argument there but it's just a way of thinking you know how can we give most people most of what they want most of the time so what compromises are going to be available to make that possible so i mean i mean firstly epistemology is sort of a brute fact about the world right if we don't have adequate knowledge in a particular domain that conclusion may or may not be boring or dispiriting, but it is what it is, right? And then yeah. you, you, you work with that. I think there's a way, though, in which I can accept what you're saying about the fundamental pluralism of values and the fundamental irreconcilability or incommensurability of those values, while still retaining an intuition that I... I mean, not that I do this, you do this, right? But, like, that I, when approaching public policy, would still bring along with me quite strong ethical priors about what I'm going to think about yeah. it. And I think the way I would do that is by locating my epistemic confidence not at the level of meta-ethics or even utilitarian versus Kantian or whatever, um, but more at this sort of mid-level um, ideological thing. Um, so what I would say is... Mature political ideologies tend not to be just, I mean, sometimes they are, but like tend not to be just, we will pursue liberty to the exclusion of all else. They sort of tend to say, we value, I mean, liberalism, for instance, says we value liberty, we value individualism in many forms, we value society, we value autonomy, we value choice. And it's sort of a package deal. They support each other. Liberty involves individualism and choice, but they also constrain each other. We need to find a compromise between liberty and society. And, you know, the classic liberal way of doing that is the public-private divide. Between liberty and harm, you've got the liberty principle. And you can disagree with that particular constellation of how you sew all those values together. Um, but my point is, that is one way of doing it. You have another way of doing it that could be conservatism or socialism or fascism, right? And I think we're not epistemically neutral 
between which way of packaging values together is better or worse. We can appeal to internal coherence of those systems. We can appeal to external coherence. Do they seem to imply things about the world that are true? So even without committing myself to a strong Kant just had it right or Bentham just had it right sort of view, I think I can still say I have a much greater epistemic level of confidence that liberalism as a package of values is true than conservatism is. And I would bring that prior to a question of public policy. I would sort of notice some degree what I think before I get in there. Sorry, that was a little long. Okay, no, so, of course, I agree with you, but there's always a but coming, right? Um, It's about um, the avenue in which you're... Uh, disseminating your views, the outlets in which you're disseminating your views, and you know, the occasion and circumstances. So if you're writing a paper for the journals, you can say whatever you want. Uh, and, and you try to make some good arguments, you try to convince a referee. Sometimes a referee will approve of a paper they strongly disagree with because they think it's provocative, and you can make any type of contribution. And that way, you know, if you're writing on an area of public policy, you will be part of the backdrop of ideas and arguments that policymakers will eventually take into account if you're if they read your work and you're lucky. But the type of work I've tended to do is um, committee work. So in, in that book, Ethics and Public Policy, almost all the uh, areas I discuss are areas where I was asked to do work where I hadn't previously worked. So in the UK, we have this tradition of getting, if you want scientists, you get scientists who know a lot about the area. If you want philosophers, you get them who know nothing about the area. So they're not already contaminated with a set of views. So I worked on animal experiments. I'd never thought about the topic for more than a few seconds before. And then I was on a committee looking at this stuff. And yeah, I remember the frustration of thinking on one of these committees, I, th- I thought I had a really neat view, much as you described, I had this package of things, it, it, it really worked well. Um, and I was on a subcommittee with two or three other people looking at the ethical things. And there was a guy, I think he was a theologian. And um, I, I gave him the view and I expected him to be bowled over straight away and he wasn't. Um, and the, he he raised a philosophical question. There was someone else, I think a lawyer, who said, well, that's very interesting, but who says it's true? Right. And I sort of began by thinking, well, you know, first year undergraduate t- tutorial, if someone says who says it's true, what do you say? You say, ha ha, no, 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 dear boy. It's not who says it's true. It's you look at the quality of the arguments. It's all about the quality of the arguments, right? Um, And that's what went through my head. And I thought, great. And so what were my arguments? And I didn't have any arguments, really, not really. Um, So this is one of the great uh, deceptions we play in philosophy. So we we say it's all about the quality of the arguments. When you look for them, they're normally arguments from a very short distance. They're not very fundamental. Or if they are, there's some transcendental deduction from the critique of something reason. And um, that's not going to convince anyone else. And so this is very frustrating exercise. You've been asked onto a committee as a philosopher. You give a philosophical view. They say, that's very interesting. So 
when people say that's very interesting, you know there's something coming. And that's very interesting, but who says? I say, well, it's not who says, uh, it's quality of the arguments, but what are the arguments? And you, you faff about a bit and you don't have much. And then you I say, well, look, you asked me onto the committee. I'm the philosopher. But of course, that's exactly the type of argument from authority that we tell our students we can't make. So you're in a place where um, people will say, you know, who said or is that an objective view or you know, what are the reasons for it? You can give sometimes you can give reasons. I don't want to be too dismissive. Um, but I found I had much more success by um, looking for widely shared values rather than a theoretical framework. So, so what do people already agree to? Let's start from that. Let's try to build on from what people agree to. Because the, the problem I realize you have on the type of committee work I do, first of all, it's not good enough to be convinced yourself. You have to convince everyone else on the committee. And quite often, your committee is a subcommittee of another committee. Um, so I did some work with the British Medical Association um, on regulation of drugs. Uh, recreational drugs. And I thought we had quite a good report and good recommendations. And they said, okay, we, we now just have to pass it through all the other committees that have an interest in this area. And because it's a wide topic, um, that's every committee. And by the way, there are a hundred of them. So our report had to be approved by a hundred other committees before it could then get to the next stage. And then someone has to stand up on Radio 4 or sit down on Radio 4 and defend it against journalists. So you've got to have something which is relatively watertight and uncontroversial. And then there's also the thing, every time I've been on one of these committees, at some point someone says, what would the Daily Mail make of this? Or what would the Daily Telegraph make of it? And so you don't want to do anything too controversial because I've tried to make you look like an idiot or an ideologue. So you're working with these incredible constraints where you have to get other people on board and you have to not say anything stupid, but you have to try to bring some philosophical reasoning. So that approach you describe of like, what's the thing that everyone will agree to? Or what's the sort of starting point that we can, um, what's the sort of set of premises, I guess, if you want to be philosophical about it, that most people can start with us on? Um would you say that, um, or that it's at least characteristic of um, a sort of Rawlsian overlapping consensus approach? Um, well, I'll just ask the question before the yeah. follow-up. <laughs> so it's very similar to uh, the idea of an overlapping consensus. So you try to find the common ground between different views when you can. And in, on the rare occasions when you can do that, it's great. Mm. Then more often you do have to leave things out. But anyway, you, you had a follow-up? Well, no, because I think there's two different ways you can look at it. One is practical and strategic. The other is in terms of some sort of innate justification. Mm. Because the argument you see, I mean, just to take your words, what will the Daily Mail say? That's sort of a practical constraint. It's mm -hmm. a brute fact mm. about the world. Uh, that policymakers have to have to work with, right? I think the the Rawlsian wants to say something a little bit thicker, which is that it's the fact that it can command mm. that sort yeah. of yeah. Um, yeah. shared agreement that makes it justified in and of itself. I'm more sceptical of the latter claim than the former. The former, if those yeah. are the facts, then that's the institutional constraints we're working mm. within. Um, the latter, to me... Well, I'll let you go on which side of that you're sort of appealing <laughs> yeah. to before yeah. I ramble on. 
So uh, you're right, this is an important distinction. And, and I'm thinking about it much more in pragmatic mode. Uh, the, the, there's another impasse of philosophers, um, which I suppose I had for a long time, which, which is to think that if you get it right, you're going to get it, you're going to settle things once and for all. Mm. And so, yes. so that is, is the idea that you know, we can find this real overlapping consensus, which hits on the permanent solution. And we never have to think about this ever again. Um, but of course, life isn't like that. Politics isn't like that. Facts change, interests change, new values come along. You notice things you've gone, got wrong. Other things seem more important than they were before. And so you're only ever constructing a temporary accommodation. Yeah. Um, and I think this is another thing that's very frustrating for philosophers because you want the principles. You want to write down principle one, principle two, principle two B, all done. Thank you. We can go home. Except you don't want to go home because that would be the end of the discipline. So it's very important that that doesn't actually happen. But this is the ambition to, to get it settled once and for all. And I don't think that's possible. No, I, I was debating with uh, Kevin Vallier, who's a sort of Rawlsian public reason type philosopher. And I was sort of, you know, what, I'm going to be a hardcore John Stuart Mill person in this conversation and we're going to explore mm. this disagreement. Um, and this was sort of what I boiled down to, essentially, is I'm not saying that an overlapping consensus isn't possible. I'm saying that it's never stable or permanent. And you just see that in political history. You get these consensuses and they last for a while and then they fail partially or fail totally. And just human history doesn't give us much hope for that sort of final permanence, you know? OK. Well, when I was in a graduate, when I was a graduate student, I, I spent a year at Harvard and my plan was to work with Rawls, but sadly he was on sabbatical all year, so I didn't get to work with him. But he did come along to one seminar. Michael Sandel was running a seminar, and Rawls had just published um, the paper uh, "Political Not Justice as Fairness: Political Not Metaphysical in Philosophy and Public Affairs." That was 1985, and and he introduces there the idea of the overlapping consensus. So we were reading this, and so the only question I ever asked Rawls was um, how likely do you think it is we could actually achieve an overlapping consensus? And he said about a thousand to one against. <laughs> um, so that took me back because I thought, yeah, what is the point of, of putting forward a theory where it's so unlikely we'll be able to achieve it? But anyway, that's what, what he said. And that seems to be quite a reasonable view. Yeah, I do get that back when I say that. Is I, I, I don't know, I'm a little off with that though because it's like this is the thing we're pursuing and you go but it's not possible and they go well whoever said it was and it's like yeah well okay fine um here's, yeah. here's another argument i raise against the overlapping consensus and i'm not attributing it the, the view i'm going to attack to you per se just this is a concern i have with that way of thinking about things is that although Rawls is in many ways um, a very liberal theory, there's definitely a strong egalitarian impulse in there. I think not the conclusions, but this way of thinking about it has an intrinsic, uh, not an intrinsically, but has a practically conservatizing bent to mm. it. Mm. Because if you're going to sort of hamstring yourself by saying our basic foundation has to be acceptable to everyone, you basically give any individual ideological grouping a sort of veto right over it, and that's going to sort of tend to default towards the status quo. If the idea is absent public justification, we don't constrain, 
then you, you're probably not going to end up making ambitious reforms, which might be needed and justified. So just to think of one very basic case, anything you do that's going to involve significantly higher taxation, which may or may not be justified, your libertarian can say, I just, this is a fundamental violation of the, what is it, knows access, the self-ownership of the person, mm-hmm. right? I am outside of your overlapping consensus. If we have to have that person on the inside, we're never going to be able to publicly justify that policy. Whereas, to my mind, we have to go with a different approach, which says we'll consider this plurality of views, but at some point we might just have to tell people that they're wrong. Now, Mm. we, of course, you can say should be strategic about that in practice and pick our battles and all of that, but I think I would still want to retain the ability to say, respectfully look but i think what you think liberty means is not the right understanding of what liberty means and we can Mm. have a conversation about that but i'm not going to hold up doing what i think is right for the sake of creating this sort of consensus which at any rate is kind of illusory okay um so i uh, there's a lot to agree with that i think the rules in answer would be to uh, distinguish those things you need to have consensus or near consensus on and the things you can leave to the democratic process. And I think uh, the way I would read rules is that there are certain things, the, the constitutional essentials you need near consensus, um, but things like tax policy you'll never get near consensus you'll never get consensus on it and so those things can be left to the democratic process where people can be outvoted and people don't have a veto um of course even when it comes to constitutional essentials Rawls does make the distinction between reasonable and the unreasonable person so the unreasonable person gets booted out but but a libertarian is not unreasonable in that sense i think that that um would change on the sort of more, um, what is it, political liberalism, the second one after theory yeah. of justice, even yeah. with that more narrow doctrine, mm. you know, the libertarian can just say, well, it's such a violation of the rights of the person that I think this should be in the Constitution, yeah. Yeah. and I yeah. don't give my consent to that. So yeah. Yeah. there's a, which some libertarians do, there are some extreme yeah. people out yeah. there. But so there, yeah, you need to have a process about it. And the, and the idea of a veto is obviously not practical in any uh, political circumstances. But I think uh, just to roll back a bit and yeah, whether yeah. there's a whether there's a status quo bias in, in, in this. So I think this is a really important point because um, when we're doing political philosophy, we do it either um, trying to work out an ideal for society. As you said, sometimes people work out a view and they say, well, whoever said it was possible, but this is the truth. Um, or sometimes they say, here's my view and look, it's better than your view. And you do this comparative. And so a lot of the egalitarian literature is you know, people with very, really very similar views, trying to say that their view is better than someone else. And of course, this is something I've done myself. Um, but when it comes to policy, we typically are not in a position where we're looking to compare one theoretical view against another theoretical view. We're in a situation where we we normally do have a policy of some sort in the area. We've got a policy about drugs. We've got a policy about gambling. We've got a policy about smoking. Um, and so the 
question is what type of change can we justify we are, we are where we are and you know people are proposing changes are these justified and quite often um yeah if we were starting from nowhere then a quite a radical alternative might look a better position than the one we've got if it was an equal choice between the two but policymakers are petrified of unintended consequences of the view of the change so you know they want to make a change but maybe it will backfire so um going back to the gambling thing again the first time the british government tried to change gambling law um they did it completely incompetently and it led to the rise of illegal casinos and london gang warfare that we've probably never really rolled back from so th- so this was meant to be you know a quite modest change to some aspects of the gambling law and there was a loophole that was massively exploited by london gangs um you know, it led to many deaths and the rise of the craze and the richardsons um so d- another discussion we have at the moment is should we legalize uh, drugs you know there's a lot of argument that drug laws are doing more harm than the drugs if you get rid of the drug laws you get rid of drug crime people don't go to prison but we have no idea what would happen if we legalized drugs so if we had an even contest against the drug laws we've got now and legalization probably legalization would win on by most arguments but we just don't know given we are where we are we don't know what we'd be unleashing by making the change so it could be you know many people would fall into addiction it could be that so um you know we'd get rid of drug crime but we wouldn't get rid of those criminals so what are they going to do if you're making a lot of money out of selling illegal drugs and now you can't what are you going to do you're going to go and work and clean the toilets in mcdonald's or are you going to start armed robbery so we just don't know what would happen if if we made those changes so therefore there is a status quo bias and there's a good reason for it because we don't know what would happen often but that's a very different sort of argument for a status quo bias than um the sort of overlapping consensus right argument. you're, you're not saying we is... can't do this because people won't agree you're saying we can't do this because we really don't know what will happen right um but I, so I would never want to say we can't do it because sometimes we do do it. And it's very interesting in the 1960s, there was a whole wave of liberal legislation, uh, you know, legalizing of homosexuality, um, end of capital punishment, uh, legalization of abortion. So the whole range of things were brought in. And yeah, the world didn't come to an end. There weren't these unintended consequences that Although ruined Although that's the argument, isn't it, that you got from... Uh, the name is escaping me, but oh, there was... Dev- Lord Devlin. Yes, think? the Devlin Report, yeah. um, which was mm. essentially, um, if we legalise homosexuality, this will sort of lead to a moral and societal yeah. collapse. Yeah. And yeah. what's fun about that is we now just have the data. Like, it didn't, you know? <laughs> like, we but just what, know now. <laughs> but what's so fascinating about those issues is that um, when we think about you know, what brought about the change in the law. Uh, a lot of people will refer to the Wolfenden report as um, they're recommending liberalisation. But I think, I may have the numbers slightly wrong, but I think it was about 10 years between the report and the change in the law. Um, so why is that interesting? So I, so I think that at any time 
obviously there's going to be a status quo set of policies. And there's also going to be a status quo public opinion. And in stable times, the public opinion and the policies are the same. But it is possible to change public opinion. Um, so to, to, to have the view that actually there's, you know, what is wrong with same-sex relations? Remind me what was meant to be wrong with it if you, if you don't believe, you know, fundamental Bible view. So I think the Wolfenden Report and other stories that were coming out in the press, you know, you know people who'd done no harm to anyone being put into prison, people killing themselves because of the shame. I, I think there was probably a shift, not a huge shift, but some shift in public opinion that made it possible to have a type of law reform. Whereas if they'd tried the law reform before, if someone had proposed the law reform before the public was ready for it, it probably would have been voted down um, and, and not taken. So I think there is a chance for a big change when public policy is out of kilter with public opinion. And just one last thought on this. So the um, so I've been quite dismissive of abstract philosophy, um, highly principled philosophy that doesn't have much direct effect on policy. I think it has this behind the scenes or can have this behind the scenes effect of changing public policy. So, uh, sorry, uh, changing public opinion. It, it, it can have the effect, abstract philosophy can have the effect of changing public opinion. Of course, people don't actually read philosophy. It has to come through journalists and other avenues. But if you think about animal rights um, or animal liberation, yeah, the, the philosophy we think about is Peter Singer when we think about animal liberation. And he's done more than anyone probably in making this a public issue, changing people's minds. If you had a committee on animal experimentation, I think most people would not want Peter Singer on their committee because he's going to be too extreme. He's not going to want to compromise. I mean, actually, as a human being, he probably would. But given his writings, he's too much already known for his view, and it's a, a very um, clear uh, clear view that would rule out a lot of farming, a lot of experiments, a lot of practices. Now, the economic cost of following his recommendations would be vast, and no one would be prepared to do it. But the fact that you've got wouldn't put him on your committee doesn't mean he hasn't changed the terms of the debate. So, so now, I mean, not just him alone, others as well, but now there's much more concern about animal welfare than there was 30 years ago because of that sort of work. So I do think abstract, ideal political philosophers can change the borders of what's thinkable and what's unthinkable. And in doing that, they shift public opinion and they shift public policy but they're not there at the sharp end of making the decisions. What they're doing is influencing the background, changing people's priors, as you put it, in terms of what they think is an acceptable and unacceptable position. Mm. Although sometimes it does happen the other way round. You get a change in public opinion follows along with it. I'm thinking of um, civil rights in America. Yes. Wildly unpopular when mm. it happened. But it was the right thing to do when it just public opinion, you know, screw you, you've got to catch up, essentially. Um, yeah, we're, st we're still waiting for that, actually, for, to, for public opinion to catch up. Um, yes. But it was, a, you're right, it was the right thing to do. So, so there's more than one model, I agree. So, so um, some people say, you know, elite theorists say policy drives opinion. It's not that opinion drives policy. And I think there are examples, but I, I don't think any. You know, this is not an area where you can really make generalizations, even though I do all the time.
Yeah, and I will say, I do accept foundational disagreement as ineliminatable, and I accept the idea of essential contestability of words means we're never going to really nail down. This is liberty. But that doesn't mean that one particular idea of liberty or one particular political ideology might not become more politically dominant, either within the population Mm -hmm. or within decision-makers. You're not ruling out often quite big movements of opinion. You're just saying it's it's never going to finally cohere to something. And I don't think that's as depressing a conclusion as people (laughs) seem to think it is. So so that's pretty much what I think. So so my image is that... um, uh, our value system is like a jigsaw with too many pieces. We just we just can't make it all fit together. So as you put these six pieces together, those two th- you have to put somewhere else for the time being. You have to hide them. Then a bit later, a philosopher like knows it comes along and says, look, you've left out responsibility. That's really important. We've got to put it right in the middle. And so you put responsibility in the middle, and then something else like solidarity falls out at the other side. Next generation, people come along and say, look, where was community in all of this? Or where was something else? And they say, that's the most important thing. The thing you've left out is the most important thing, or is the only thing. And so people will take these neglected values and think, okay, I finally found it. No one is talking about this. It's actually the most important thing. Put it back in the center. And then there are other ripples. So I think this is what we do. We're constantly renewing our sort of political settlements. So at the moment, I think we have overemphasized individual responsibility to a point where it's not sustainable. And we have ignored solidarity. And I would hope that political philosophers can do a job of... um, trying to defend solidarity and protection of the vulnerable and downplaying the importance of responsibility. And, you know, I, I see that happening to some degree in philosophy, not in public life, unfortunately. Okay, great. And um, if people want to look up you or your work, um, where should they go? Do you have a Twitter handle, website, anything like that? Uh, so I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, Joe Wolf BSG on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um I have a website. Probably the easiest thing is just to Google. Um, my name is the same as the person who wrote the Seinfeld mm-hmm. theme tune. So he's slightly more famous than me. So that's where you'll go first. But if you Google me, I'll be somewhere on the first or second page, probably. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Mm-hmm.